So as you know, we've been working our way through the book of Mark with certain questions posed to Jesus and how he responds to those questions. Last week, if you recall, we saw the Jewish leaders approach Jesus with a trick question. It was a disingenuous question about the source of Jesus' authority. They weren't really interested in the answer that Jesus gave. It seems they were motivated by a desire to trap Jesus because when Jesus turned the question around on them and asked about John the Baptist and his authority, they were unwilling to publicly commit themselves and just shrugged their shoulders, sat on the fence. Of course, for them, taking a side on John was the same as taking a side on Jesus. So that question, that issue was effectively a religious question, a question of religious authority. And by asking the question of Jesus, they would expose him either, at least in their way of thinking, they would expose him as either a blasphemer if he claimed to have authority from God or as a fraud who claimed to be from God perhaps but was really only motivated by human authority. So this week we're going to see them try to trap Jesus again, but this time with a different type of question. This time it's a political issue that struck to the heart of the relationship between the Jews and the powers that be in Rome. Now they're putting Jesus not just against the religious powers, the Pharisees, the temple, the priests, but the secular power of the Roman Empire. So let's read the passage for this morning before we look at it in more detail. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13. There we read, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's? And they were amazed at him. So firstly, notice how their aim in questioning, as I've said, is explicitly stated as being a trap. They're trying to catch him in his words. I'll speak to the heart of the question they ask in a moment. But they're putting this question to Jesus that would have him contemplate what would amount to an insurrection against the Romans. His answer will either make him popular with the Jews, with the crowds, um, who didn't want to pay tax, or would keep him safe from the Romans. And unlike last week, Jesus can't really not answer because the Romans would probably have interpreted silence on the question as insurrection in of, of itself. If he wouldn't openly say, well, of course you have to pay to Rome, then they would accuse him of being a rebellious figure. But notice also how they approach Jesus with flattery. 
They give him the old oil, as they say. So Jesus, you're a man of integrity. You're not, you're not swayed by others. You're no respecter of persons. Jesus is his own man. He isn't afraid to speak the truth, even truth to power. And all that, of course, is true. But you see how they're buttering him up. Um, and you get the impression that they're trying to goad him into a response this time. Because if Jesus doesn't respond, not only could they call him a traitor in the eyes of Rome, but he would seriously lose face before the crowds. This supposed brave, independent teacher that has the courage to speak the truth, um, he talks a good game, but when it's on the line, he doesn't have the guts to take a side on this hot issue of the day. They've learned from their attempt last week um, where Jesus skillfully avoided the trap. Now it's effectively Jesus' reputation on the line. Is he the man he's reputed to be? Is he the courageous teacher that he claims to be, that the people purport him to be? Or is he just another coward uh, seeking flattery? So what's the question that they ask him and why is it such a big deal? Well, Basically, they asked Jesus, is it appropriate to pay the tax to Caesar? Not just is it right or lawful, not is it the law to pay the tax, but should we actually pay the tax? Should we obey the law? The the taxing question is what's called a poll tax, which was a fixed sum of money that was owed by everybody, every citizen, over a particular age. The amount was the same no matter how wealthy or how poor you were. It's not like today where we pay a tax in proportion to our income. This was a fixed amount. And as such, you can imagine how such a tax would be especially unpopular amongst the poor people because that's obviously a much bigger proportion of what you what you own. For the wealthy, it might be a trivialing amount, um, but for the poor, it was a much greater tax. This tax was instituted in Judea around the year 6 AD, following a census given to determine the assets and resources of the Jews, a bit like the Doomsday Book, if, if you're familiar with that, from the 11th century in England. As I've said, this tax was incredibly unpopular. And the historian Josephus notes that the event, the the extent of the unrest that the institution of this tax provoked. In fact, Luke in in, in Acts chapter 5 mentions this census um, and the trouble that it caused in, 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 uh, in, in Judea. If you recall there, the Sanhedrin's trying to decide what to do with the apostles after they're persisting in teaching about Jesus in the temple. And there Gamaliel, one of the, the Pharisees, stands up and talks about this history of failed messiahs that have come in the past. And in verse 37 of Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel mentions Judas the Galilean, who appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. Of course, he too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Josephus also records how this Judas figure that Luke refers to um, believed that since only God was the ruler of Israel, 
Israel didn't owe anything to Rome. So he and his followers urged Jews not to register for this tax. And even people who did register for the tax, they'd burn their houses and stole property from them because they were viewed as collaborators with, with Rome. So you can see how the Jewish leaders are trying to pull Jesus right into this controversial issue. These Roman taxes were very unpopular with the Jews because they, of course, saw Rome as an illegitimate occupying force. And, of course, we also know how unpopular the tax collectors were amongst the Jews, figures like Matthew and Zacchaeus, uh, who were outcast from society because they were seen as collaborators with Rome. Of course, most Jews expected this Messiah that they were expecting to liberate them from this oppressive regime, this oppressive power. And so as a purported Messiah, the, Jew, the, leaders, the Jewish leaders that are questioning Jesus might have expected Jesus to come down on Judas's side, on the side of the people that resented this tax and presumably assumed he would then f- f- uh, share the same fate of Judas. But of course, if he didn't, Jesus would put himself on Rome's side and the side of the unpopular tax collectors. And surely doing that, he would hemorrhage followers and ruin his ministry. So no matter how Jesus answered, it seemed to them, um, the Jesus problem would go away, either as a traitor to Rome or a deserter of the Jewish people. So how does Jesus respond? Firstly, He makes it clear that he understands their motives. Why are you trying to trap me, he says. He sees what they're trying to do and he's not going to be drawn into their trap. Then he asks them to show him a denarius. This is a common Roman silver coin of the day and it was worth about a day's wages for a common labourer. And it's also believed to be the amount of the tax in question. So this is the coin that would pay the tax. You can see here, here's one of said uh, denarius is from uh, the reign of Tiberius, who was Caesar during Jesus' ministry. Um, it's hard to make out in the image there, but it says in Latin, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And that's obviously his face. On the reverse side is also, um, it's an image of his mother, Tiberius's mother, so he's obviously a mama's boy, um, and there's the inscription Pontiff Maxim in, in, in uh, Latin, which means greatest priest. And this was a religious title of the Romans that had been assumed by the Caesars uh, following Augustus's uh, reign. So this is what the coin looks like that Jesus asked them to show him. And of course, as I said, it's the image and inscription of Tiberius that Jesus points to. And he says to them, whose image is it? Whose inscription is it? And of course, the obvious answer, it's, it's Caesar's inscription. But then Jesus gives his famous response. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now, there's a lot that we'll say about this. But I just want us to first see how Jesus' answer deals with this trap that we've talked about, that they've tried to set for him. Firstly, he acknowledges the validity 
of the Roman tax. He's not calling for an insurrection against Rome. But at the same time, he also acknowledges God's authority, the temple's authority, perhaps, perhaps even the Pharisees' authority as religious leaders. He's responding to this quandary not with fence-sitting like the Pharisees last week, but he's showing it as a situation of both and. We owe some allegiance to both God and the government. As I said, we'll talk a bit more about this in a moment, but I just want to point, want you to notice how if you think about it, Jesus' point about Caesar and Caesar's coin is obvious and unavoidable. See, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Herodians, everybody on all sides of this debate were in the habit of using this coinage that literally had Caesar's image and name on them. Notice, they had one handy. They had, they had the coin because they were using the coin. They were using Caesar's coin. And simply using Caesar's coin is an effective, a, a practical recognition of Caesar's authority. You can't enjoy the benefits that Caesar and his government provide, peace, the financial system, including the coinage, the economy, the infrastructure like roads, water supplies, sewers, all of those sorts of things. You can't enjoy the benefits of government and expect to give nothing in return. The position they tried to trap Jesus with, that Jews owed nothing to Rome, was belied by their practical dependence on Rome and the Roman government. They might not agree with Rome religiously. They might be oppressed by Rome in many ways. They might resent Rome's continued presence in Israel, but they still relied on Rome in many ways in their everyday lives. And that's not nothing. And it isn't unreasonable to pay back to Caesar, to pay back to the government for those types of things that they provide. So I think it's the simple obviousness of this argument that amazes uh, his questioners. Whether they thought about it or not, they were living lives that recognised the authority of both God and Caesar. Jesus just forced them to think about it. They couldn't argue Jesus' point without making themselves out as hypocrites who decried any allegiance to Rome and yet lived under their protection. So Jesus may have won this argument for now, but they don't give up if we look ahead in the story because when Jesus Jesus soon finds himself dragged before the leaders, dragged before the Roman governor Pilate, what do we see them accusing Jesus of? In Luke chapter 23, we see, Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. In other words, they're accusing Jesus of exactly what he had not said about tax. He said, pay tax, but they're claiming he said not to pay tax. What liars. In fact, it's worse, because if you remember... The crowd at Jesus' trial called for the release of another prisoner, Barabbas, in place of Jesus. 
And Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an uprising or an insurrection. In other words, Barabbas did rebel against the Roman government and yet the Jews were happy for him to be released. While Jesus, who hadn't rebelled against the government and advocated the opposite, they were happy to execute him despite that. But that just goes to show how dishonest these leaders were in their questioning, all their attempts uh, that they were determined to kill Jesus through. They didn't care what the truth was about how Jesus answered even this question. They were determined to kill him no matter what. But let's think some more about Jesus' answer because he didn't just say to give to Caesar what is Caesar's but also to give to God what is God's. In other words, Jesus is suggesting that in some way there are two kinds of different spheres or areas of responsibility or authority. There's Caesar's and there's God's. We frequently hear the phrase, the separation of church and state. Um, Is this what Jesus is talking about? And if so, what does he mean? By this? What do we mean by this? Firstly, let me note that I think that Jesus has been talking in this vein for most of his ministry. If you cast your mind back several weeks to when Peter was talking about Mark chapter 8, where Jesus predicts his death and Peter rebukes him, uh, says, No, that's not, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen. And Jesus responds to Peter in verse 33. You do, not have in the mind of, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then later in verse 36, he says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? In other words, you can see how there's this suggestion of two different spheres. There are godly concerns and there are human concerns. There's the whole world and then there's your soul. It's clear here which Jesus is prioritising, but he goes on to describe how different these concerns are, these concerns of God and of the world. As he told his disciples, God's concerns look like suffering and death, denial of the self, sacrifice, these types of things. And those are the things that Peter's rejecting when he rebuked Jesus for suggesting that he would die. So you see how these two spheres, if you like, these two different worlds, they look very different and have very different priorities. This theme continued when David spoke about Mark chapter 10, where James and John come to Jesus asking for a special place of honour in the kingdom. Jesus responds there in verse 42, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. In other words, the worldly rulers live and act and honour one way, but not so with you, he says. His kingdom is different. There's worldly rulers and kingdoms, And they are different and they value different things to Jesus and his kingdom, God's kingdom. 
I think this is what Jesus has been trying to teach his disciples all along. And I think this is what Jesus continues to point out when he's asked about the tax. Yes, there's worldly authority and power, and that deserves our attention and respect. But his kingdom isn't a part of that world. It's not a part of that authority. And it too deserves our attention. And this is exactly what Jesus tells Pilate at his trial. Remember, Jesus is there defending himself against these accusations that he incited rebellion by advocating that Jews not pay tax, even though he'd actually said the opposite. And Pilate's probing him about his kingdom and what it means for him to be a king. John responds in John chapter 18, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So you see here how Jesus clearly makes this distinction between his kingdom and the world. But notice that it isn't just that they're two rival kingdoms competing with one another. His servants are explicitly not fighting to prevent his arrest. Peter tried, you remember, in the garden when Jesus is arrested. He pulls out his sword, he cuts off uh, somebody's ear in the crowd, but Jesus says, no, stop that. He says, am I leading a rebellion? Um, That's not what I'm about. Jesus isn't rebelling against the government. He's in fact submitting to the authority of the government, no matter how corrupt uh, that government is, especially in his case. So you see, this paints these two kingdoms, it paints a picture of these two kingdoms that aren't, strictly speaking, opposing one another in the way that we might often conceive of it. You see, when we hear ideas like the separation of church and state, we can easily get this picture in our minds of two completely separate and opposing things. They don't speak to each other and they deal with completely separate parts of our lives. The state has no authority over the church in any way and the state need not or ought not listen to the voice of the church in any way. The state speaks to this part of my life over here, perhaps, you know, road rules, property rights, um, tax even, whatever I might concede to the state. But everything else, I'll claim liberty in Christ. God didn't command it, so I can ignore whatever the government might say about that matter. Or worse, the government might make something lawful, but if it isn't on Sunday or a churchy type of thing, that's all that matters, whether the government says it's all right or not. This thing's just, just it's business. It's not church stuff. This is business, and so different rules apply. We can end up making all sorts of perverted justifications if we try and sift our lives into these two separate boxes of church and state. And I don't think that this is what Jesus is advocating for at all. Instead, I want to suggest that the picture is more one of overlaying or encompassing, where in fact God's authority covers both the church and the state. Think of it this way. Which is the more correct statement? Some things are Caesar's, some things are God's. Or some things are Caesar's, 
All things are God's. I think it's the second. Look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. In other words, we are subject to the government not in spite of our submission to God's authority, but because we are in submission to God's authority. The government only has any authority at all because it comes from God. And this isn't just some sort of moral authority about right and wrong, but it extends even to these mundane issues like taxes, paying what we owe. As Paul continues in verse 6, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. And if honour, then honour. Paul describes the authorities, the government, as God's servants. And as such, they deserve pay just like anybody else. Similar to the point we made earlier about the Pharisees enjoying the benefits of the Roman government while resenting any allegiance in return, Paul makes that same argument. The government serves you as they serve God, and for that reason, they are owed their due. I'd argue that this extends even to minor matters that we might consider trivial or unnecessary, or even just personally disagree with when we disagree with any government action for whatever reason. To make this point, let me cite this brief incident with Jesus recorded in Matthew chapter 17. There we read, After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? So another tax issue comes up. Peter replies, Yes, he does. Then Peter came into the house. Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake and throw at your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now, It isn't my intention here to get into what Jesus is saying about why he is exempt from the tax. It's the Jewish religious tax that we find recorded in Exodus chapter 30. I just want to note this morning that Jesus considered himself to be exempt from that tax, yet he was willing to pay it anyway. And why was he willing to pay the tax that he was exempt from? Not to cause offence. This wasn't because he didn't have the right to refuse the tax or the courage to stand up to the priests. We know Jesus chose to do that on many different occasions. It wasn't a matter of courage. But in this particular instance, he says, no, it's not worth the fight. 
It isn't worth making a scene to stand up for my rights in this instance. I'll pay the tax and keep the peace. For the most part, I think the New Testament paints this picture of peaceful cooperation with government, even corrupt government um, of, of, of Jesus' day of the first century. Both Paul and Peter admonish us to obey these ruling authorities, just as Jesus did. And so I think we ought to think of our governments this way as much as possible. They're worthy of our respect and obedience, even when we might not like to, or even when we agree with them and their decisions. The one exception, of course, that we find to this is when the apostles are forbidden um, from preaching the gospel of Jesus. And Peter famously responds that we must obey God rather than human beings. But this reminds us that while God's authority flows to us through governments, it doesn't exclusively flow through governments. We don't simply obey God by obeying the government. Obeying the government is just part of what it means to obey God completely. We don't just listen to the government. We ultimately listen to God. I think this is especially worth remembering in a democracy such as ours, where our relationship with the government isn't just a one-way street of an unaccountable dictator like it was in Jesus' day. We don't have Caesar. We vote. We write to our MPs. We do all sorts of different things in a negotiation with our governments. Because when we imagine God's authority extending over the government, I think we can also see this as God's kingdom in the church overlaying and wrapping around the government in a way. There's that sense in which we as the church influence and colour the government and the world around us. Not in the sense that we necessarily try and impose our will through force or on those around us. Jesus didn't advocate the use of force in that way. But I think there's other ways of working. There's other ways that God's kingdom shapes and affects the world around us and even the governments. Think of images like yeast working itself through dough, salt making things salty, a lamp shedding its light. I think that's what God's calling us to as his ambassadors. The first century church managed this type of influence on the world around them, even though, even while they were persecuted severely and without most of the freedoms that we enjoy today and take for granted. So how much more ought we be able to achieve if we commit ourselves to this task in our world? But whatever we do, we do it humbly and peaceably, living at peace as much as possible with the world around us. And as we do so, let's exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. 
Against such things there is no law.